following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Imagine you're a farmer and you just bought some farmland, just bought some acreage, uh, new to you, perhaps owned by somebody else, but arable land that is good for crops. And as you look over your property, what begins to take shape in your mind? That first day when you have the deed in hand and you, you finally look over your property, what, what, do you, what do you see in your mind's eye? Well, I'm not a farmer, but if I had some land and I was going to farm it, I think what would come to my mind would be the plants. I would see the plants that I was going to, uh, to plant and the crops that I was going to harvest and see come up out of the ground under my care. And with that vision in mind, then uh, what you can do is you can proceed to, to lay out your plants, to buy the seed that you're going to need, to define your action steps on how best to cultivate that land, uh, to get the right supplies and machines and tools and farming implements that you're going to need to go about your work. And then, of course, um, even the, the additives you're going to put into the ground or the pesticides and herbicides you're going to use unless you're really hardworking organic farmer and you avoid those kinds of things. Uh, but... All of this stuff, the seed you buy, the planting patterns that you're going to impose upon the land, uh, the machines and tools that you're going to get uh, to plant and to harvest, and even those chemicals and additives that you may or may not use, that you'll use or that you're going to avoid using, they all depend on something. What do they depend on? That vision. That vision that you have in your mind. For example... If you want to plant cotton, you don't buy tobacco seeds. If you want to plant lima beans, you don't buy corn seeds. And we could go on down the list. The vision defines what it is you're going to do to bring forth the harvest you want to realize in that farmland. You're answering that question. What do I want to see? See, envision, coming up out of this field, out of the ground. Whereas the farmer answers that question about his land, our Lord answers this question about the kingdom of heaven. What does God want to see as a product of his kingdom? And he's been answering that question all through the Sermon on the Mount as we've been going through it together verse by verse. In the sermon up to this point, starting in chapter 5, Christ has made clear that God the Father wants to receive one thing wholehearted devotion from the disciple citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is what will glorify God. That's what the Father envisions seeing coming up out of the kingdom of heaven. He desires your and my undivided hearts and lives. Nothing less. After casting his vision for blessedness and wholehearted righteousness in chapter 5, Jesus Christ then proceeds at the beginning of chapter 6 to apply that teaching to three of the most prevalent practices of religious devotion known to man, not just in ancient Israel, but I would say all over the world and every day and every uh, time and age. Almsgiving, giving to the poor, uh, prayer, and fasting. 
And he applies that teaching from chapter 5 to those three uh, particular practices. In chapter 6, verse 1, gave us his main point. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The heart of the Christian disciple it may be filled with compassion for men. Indeed, is very concerned about others. But the Christian disciple serves an audience of one, serves God alone as our chief and highest good. And Christ is going to be unpacking that in more and fuller measure with different illustrations and, and, uh, and images as we proceed through the rest of the sermon. And we come now this evening to verses 19 through 24. And as we do so, we're entering the conclusion not only of chapter 6, uh, but also the conclusion of Christ's teaching on good works and the introduction of a new section. A section of the sermon that focuses on the relationship of the disciples to the world and to their needs in that world. Uh, that uh, Our New Testament reading that we read through the end of chapter 6 gets us into the first half of this new section about the disciples' relationship to the world, how it is to live in the world with all of its needs. And this section arguably extends... Uh, through chapter 7, verse 12. So we'll be considering you know, that in the weeks to come. But from our reading this evening, I'll be preaching two sermons, one tonight and, Lord willing, one next week. The first one is entitled, God's Heavenly Storehouse. It's about that to which we should look in this life as we live our lives as followers of Christ. And then the follow-up sermon next week on verses 25 through 34 are going to be dealing with the world's anxiety, which is that from which we look away as we live our lives, going through this life as disciples of Christ. So tonight we're going to consider that to which we must look, and then next week we'll be looking in greater detail about that from which we're looking away as disciples. What Christ sets before us here in verses 19 through 21 and then defends um, against certain objections as infinitely valuable in verses 22 through 24 is God's gracious reward promised to his children, that which he's been, that bell he's been ringing throughout chapter 6, namely eternal good, eternal good in the sight of God. And so what Christ shows us in this text is that the pursuit of eternal good must be the aim of those whose minds are enlightened with heavenly wisdom and whose lives are shaped by their exclusive love for God. The pursuit of eternal good must be the aim of those whose minds are enlightened with heavenly wisdom and whose lives are shaped by their exclusive love for God. We will consider Christ's teaching under three headings this evening. Our eternal good, in verses 19 through 21, an enlightened mind in verses 22 and 23, and an exclusive love in verse 24. Our eternal good, an enlightened mind, and an exclusive love. In the first place, in verses 19 through 21, we are given a picture of our eternal good and a call to pursue our eternal good. Christ actually gives us in these verses two commands 
and a common reason for both of them. In verse 19, he gives us a negative command, not to work for earthly gain. And then in verse uh, 20, he gives us a positive command to work for heavenly gain. And in verse 21, gives us that common reason for both commands. And then in the subsequent verses, he will meet two objections. And so we're, we're going to spend most of our time on this point because it lays a foundation for understanding what it is Christ is talking about when he gets to the eye as a lamp of the body and then uh, serving two masters and the impossibility of doing that. So in the first place, Christ opens up with a negative command. He says to them, do not treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where stealers break in and steal. I changed a couple of the words to reflect the Greek there. Christ is being very emphatic, using uh, words that almost look identical as he's making this point to his disciples, not to work for earthly gain. In connection with verses 1 through 18, Christ is, is warning here against aligning with the values of those hypocritical Pharisees who put on a show of religious devotion for what purpose? To impress men for the favor of those around them, to gather for themselves honor from fellow creatures rather than favor or honor from the Creator. He's warning His disciples, don't store up for yourselves that earthly advantage, that creaturely benefit. In connection with the following verses, however, Christ is actually warning against something that should hit each of us close to home, and that is the accumulation of material wealth. You see, verses 19 through 21, they kind of, they kind of overlap the two sections. He's referring metaphorically to that earthly treasure of um, other men's esteem and a good reputation and favor from others, but he's also speaking quite literally about the accumulation of material wealth, which is a temptation, uh, especially in a wealthy society such as ours, but really in any kind of culture. Because that wealth, those material possessions, be it land or houses or, or money or whatever, um, you can't take it with you, can you? Your use of it will expire along with your time on earth. How important is this to press home? Well, judging by the way many men and women live. In fact, the way that some of us have lived in the past, or perhaps you find yourself living now, we tend to act like we can take it with us. We tend to act like these material possessions of ours, they're the end-all, be-all. That this is what really matters. Um, in ancient Egypt, we're still uncovering tombs where they really thought they could take it with them. And they surrounded themselves with their wealth and even perishable food, thinking that they would use it in their journey into the afterlife to be judged by the sun god. What utter foolishness is that? You know, the bread that the pharaohs laid out in their tombs, it rotted and it wasted away. And it's less than dust today. And so it is with our money and our possessions uh, even now. And Christ supports this command here in, um, in verse 19 uh, by making an observation about the way things in this life are. Things waste away. Material possessions, they fall apart. Or they are otherwise taken from us by those who break in and steal, by moths that eat through clothing or rust that corrodes metal. 
As you consider these images of thieves breaking in, stealing things, uh, or moth and rust eating away at that which is valuable to us in our use, consider this. Consider just how fleeting, just how vain the things of this world really are. It's a sobering thought. Yes, Christ is going to get, in, in the next section, next week, he's going to make the point that you do need clothing, you do need food, you do need money, you need what... Uh, the Westminster Divines call a competent portion of the good things of this life. Um, but these things, at the end of the day, what value do they have? They're purely instrumental. They help us do things, but they have no value in and of themselves. Even a little moth, like so much flying paper, can eat through it. A spot of rust can ruin a car and its value. I mean, these... Uh, it's a sobering picture. The evil, the malice, even the need around us in society might lead some men uh, to steal from others. But moth and rust, it's actually very interesting that Christ alludes to these and applies them here in this setting. Moth and rust, they're natural rather than social or economic ills. And they remind us that whether we see evil in, in the thief the malicious thief, or you see evil in natural processes like rusting and, and moth eating, uh, God has cursed all his creation um, with the marks of his wrath for sin. Let me repeat that. Corruption, decay, destruction in our possessions, they remind us of the curse that God has foisted upon creation for man's sin. When something of yours breaks or becomes useless, what do you feel? Do you, do you feel frustration at the inconvenience that now, oh, I have to go replace that thing or I have to fix that thing? Uh, do you feel perhaps anger at the person who broke it or, or the bugs that got into your clothes or what have you, or even the carelessness that led to a rusting out of something that perhaps shouldn't be rusted? Do you feel the sting of that inconvenience, or do you feel the sting of sin and its consequences? Brothers and sisters, are we spiritually minded even in these little things? Every broken dish, every shorted circuit, every dented fender, every moth-eaten garment should call to our minds this, the destruction of sin as it manifests itself in our world. And all of those things, though we might be frustrated by them and have to address them, should first and foremost, principally or primarily, in the very first place, drive us to our knees in prayer, seeking for God's pardoning grace and forgiveness. We should say, God, I am reminded, I am reminded of that toward which all physical things tend. Destruction, breaking down what physicists called entropy due to Adam's sin in which I am complicit. The guilt of which I have inherited in being conceived in sin. Lord, forgive me. Give me the forgiveness that is found in Christ alone who absorbed your wrath of which these are but pale reflections who absorbed your wrath on the cross, that I might not suffer that for all eternity. Even in these little mundane things, 
like moths and rust. We're reminded of the curse of sin and our need for God's grace. Well, Christ follows up on on this negative command not to work for earthly gain. He follows up on it with a positive command to work for heavenly gain. Again, in agreement with everything he said up to this point, Christ now calls his disciples to treasure up for themselves treasures in God's dwelling place. Look at what he says. He says, store up for yourselves or treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is interesting. All creation was cursed with Adam due to his sin. But heaven, the highest heaven where God dwells, it wasn't cursed. The curse does not touch the highest heavens. And why is that? Man had no dominion there. God alone has dominion there. He did not delegate that to man. Uh, God's dwelling place, his throne room, it's untouched by the curse of man's sin because man had no say over that. And what does it mean to store up treasure there in this unblemished, perfect, heavenly abode of our Father? Well, it means to have God himself for your true treasure, to lay claim to the treasures of heaven as your own. As David confesses in Psalm 16, where he calls God and God alone his only good, his inheritance, his portion, and ultimately his joy and his delight. And can you honestly say here as you sit here this evening, I make God my delight. He is my treasure. I've laid claim to the treasures of heaven. That's where my treasures are stored because that's where God dwells. That's where he is. Well, how can we do this? How can we make uh, God our treasure? You can give your attention to God and his concerns as he has made them known to us in his word in the first place. In the second place, you can turn your earthly goods into heavenly treasures, not by trying to purchase grace, that's not what I'm saying, but by responsibly giving to the poor according to God's direction in his word, by supporting the spread of the gospel and the extension of the kingdom, uh, by being generous in fellowship with other believers, opening up your home to others, as many of you do. And thirdly, you can prepare even now and resolve in your heart to be willing and ready to part with all that you have. All that you have. All that you have had. All that you will have from this point forward. Even your life. Rather than to part with Christ as your Savior and your God. I was speaking with a man one time and recounting a story of, I think it was, 280 or 300 Knights Templar during the crusade in a fortress in Egypt uh, during the crusades. And the Muslims took over the fortress and had each of the Templars kneel and one by one went through and instructed each Templar to forsake Jesus Christ and their allegiance to Christ and to pronounce the Shahada, which is the Muslim confession of uh, basically faith in uh, Allah and in Muhammad as his prophet. And each and every single uh, crusader knight, each and every knight Templar, refused to recount his faith in Christ according to the story, and each and every single one was beheaded on the spot and dropped to his death in the dust. And I was speaking to this man about it, and it was many years ago, and he said, you know, I just don't understand why they would do that. It's just words. Just say it. 
and then, and then escape and go live your life and do something else. And I said, well, I think you're missing the point here. I think the point is that there's power in our words. There's meaning there. And they received a heavenly crown upon their entrance to heaven, the crown of the martyrs. For they refused to deny Jesus Christ even to the death. Are you willing to do the same? Yeah, I would give up my life for Christ. Well, how is that reflected? How, how is that truth reflected, that confession reflected in your day-to-day -day life? Are you willing to, to give up uh, the convenience or, or the wealth or the time or the energy or whatever it is uh, that you enjoy in this life for the sake of Christ and in His service? That is the question that's posed to us. And Christ says, do that. For in so doing, you're storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. In that, you are treasuring the treasure of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the amazing thing. Though heaven in the highest heavens is not the dominion of man, yet a man dwells there even now before the throne of God interceding on your behalf, that you would be faithful to the death. You know who that man is. It's not Adam. It's our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross, who entered the grave but could not be kept therein and by the power of the Holy Spirit burst the bonds of death and condemnation and rose again ascending into heaven uh, for our sakes and the glory of God above. Is he your treasure? That's where he is. If he is your treasure, your treasures are stored up in heaven. Well, pressing on, in verse 21, Jesus gives us a common reason for both commands. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart shall be also. And he emphasizes here the location again. He's been speaking about where your treasure is. He teaches us in this statement as he gives this reason um, for storing up treasures in heaven, and whatever that looks like. He, he gives us uh, this reason, and it teaches us some things. In the first place, it teaches us how to examine the state of our own hearts. What are your attentions? What are your affections? Where do your thoughts go? Uh, what do your plans look like week to week? How is your time spent? Uh, where do you invest your money and spend your money? Are you invested in God and in His affairs? Is your heart in your Heavenly Father's concerns? Or do you find yourself consumed with the things of this world? I think the place where this is most clearly expressed in our lives is not so much in our paychecks. That's probably number two. But in how we use our most valuable resource. What's our most valuable resource? Our time. How do you use your time? Do you ever catch yourself binge-watching videos or spending tons of time on social networks or on television? or perhaps reading frivolous literature, or uh, maybe it's a hobby that's otherwise good and productive, but just seems so life-consuming. All these things pull us away and distract us from that which is our chief and highest good, God. Now, many of us are called to spend 40-plus hours a week in a workplace, but even that, do you do so in order just simply to make money and to feed yourself, or do you do it with a mind to the fact that you're serving the Lord? And that you're giving this over as service to God. So ask yourself, examine your heart. Is your heart in heaven where your treasure is? Is your treasure in heaven? For that's where your heart shall be. 
In the second place, it shows us how we can know whether we have any portion in heaven at all. In, in other words, um, as you meditate on where it is your affections lie, how it is your will is, is, is turned to the things of God, that, that could be a support to your assurance of your salvation. It's a very common one. See, the unbeliever, the one who has not been claimed by God, who has not been born anew by the Holy Spirit, he has no interest in the things of God. No real, vital, fervent, or zealous interest. But the true believer, he in whom God has been working, uh, he will have a sincere devotion for God and to the things of God. And it's going to reflect itself in his, in his time, his energy, uh, how he spends his money, and his attention, especially in prayer which Christ had just been teaching on. One support of our assurance that God indeed has claimed us as his own is a demonstration of our interest in him through all of these means. For where your treasure is, there your heart shall be also. In the third place, we can ask, okay, what is it to have my treasures in heaven? What is it to actually treasure God, to, to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's to have your delight, to have your heart affections, to have your energies, your efforts, your thoughts, your labors, all heavenward. So much so that you would, in fact, despise the things of this earth in favor of your ultimate good in heaven. Not that you mindlessly or reflexively despise or hate the things of this earth, uh, but that you would so far prefer heavenly good that in the words of the songwriter, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his goodness and grace, that you would prefer heaven and its promises, namely God himself and his presence, than even your own life. That's all it's saying. Christ is going to add to this later on in the gospel as he speaks of uh, you know, forsaking family, forsaking riches, forsaking your own interests and, and your own uh, desires and designs, all for the sake of God himself and his gospel and his kingdom. Christ is the master teacher and, in fact, incarnation of heavenly wisdom now proceeds to meet two sharp objections to this instruction which he's given to his disciples to set their aim on their eternal good in heaven above. And he does so by putting forward in the first place the operative principle of the Christian life. That is an enlightened mind. Picking up at verse 22. He says to the disciples, the eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, he doesn't clearly lay out for us the objection itself, but he gives us the answer to a possible objection. And so what can we infer about what it is Christ is addressing here? Well, think about it this way. Perhaps you boys and girls are thinking about it even now. All right, Pastor Groff, if heavenly treasures are such a big deal, how come more people aren't in the building right now? How come the wisest and wealthiest and smartest and most successful people in the world don't seem to care at all about this heavenly treasure of which you speak? Why is it that so many intelligent people and even nice people Neglect to pursue heavenly things. That's the objection. Why is it that Balaam 
who was so smart, upon whom the Spirit of God fell, who knew exactly what God was up to with the people of Israel, why is it that he still chooses the wealth of Balak, this pagan king, rather than the cause of God and Christ? Well, Christ answers that objection with this image of the eye. The eye here is representative of the understanding. The understanding which gives light for wise direction in the house, so to speak. If you're light in your house, you turn it on so you can see where you're going, so you can make good decisions about how to manage your home. And so, like manner, your eye, insofar as it's full of light, as Jesus says, allows you wisely to direct the affairs of your life. And what he's saying here is that those who do not treasure that which is in heaven above have a bad eye. The light's not working. The light is functionally darkness to them. And that will show itself either in this life or in the hereafter. As all of their designs, all of their ingenuity, all of their genius is wasted on the things of this world where the treasures are going to rust and get moth-eaten or even stolen away from them. They can't bring everything they're working for into heaven above. And we see that preeminently so in the life of Balaam, but also in the lives of those who match this description. And so instead, what should we do? Well, we should yearn for a clear eye, as the New American Standard puts it. If your eye is clear, we might render that word healthy or whole or just simply good. If your eye is whole, like your heart should be whole, completely dedicated to God, well, then your whole body will be full of light. All your life will be enlightened. You will have an enlightened mind, and you will live according to that operative principle. In the first place, what this looks like is laboring for the wisdom that Christ speaks of and that Christ promises by submitting ourselves wholly and entirely to the written word of God. This is the source of our wisdom for life. We can glean certain things from creation, but the way of salvation, what God requires of us, both as creatures and as Christians, it's laid out for us in the word, sufficiently so. And we should approach it with submission in our hearts. And from this point, in the second place, we should walk wisely in all our ways, seeking to observe things in the right way through the grid of Scripture, uh, seeking to judge things in the right way according to Scripture's statutes and mandates, and then making plans in the right manner in submission to God and His priorities as laid out in Scripture. And then, of course, executing those plans in the right way in the manner which God describes with gentleness, with love for neighbor, and preeminently with love for God. In the third place, we should take advantage of those natural endowments and gifts that we have of wisdom and wit and intelligence and skills and talents and unite them to the spiritual wisdom which is derived from God's Word and applied by His Spirit. And therefore, order all of our affairs by God's word, turning all of our talents and treasures and skills to the, the purposes of God as outlined in his word. And where we have this wisdom in the fourth place, let us be careful to pursue this thing above all else, true spiritual blessedness in God, resolving to lay hold of all the saving graces of God's spirit 
in our own hearts. You see, it is the evil and blind eye of the natural man, that which we were in our sins and uh, in our spiritual deadness that leads us astray from the things of heaven, that distracts us with the things of this earth and worldly concerns like what it is we're going to wear, what it is we're going to eat, how much money is going to be in my bank account, and all of these things which we'll be talking about in weeks to come. And takes us away from the glories and splendors and riches of heaven in Christ Jesus that are laid up there with him. And as we're turned away from him and pulled into these earthly concerns, then our minds grow darker and progressively darker and we fall into error and then ultimately damnation. And that's a warning that Christ gives. So what if all the world strays from God yet... He who is enlightened in his mind and the knowledge of Christ will know the truth, for his eye will be good, and he'll be able to walk wisely in this world. The second objection that Christ deals with, he answers in verse 24, where he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Why would Jesus have to say, you cannot serve God and wealth? What do you think the objection was? Well, why not seek after both heavenly riches and earthly riches? Why can't I do both? That's exactly what Christ is defeating here. And what he puts forward in response to that objection is an exclusive love. An exclusive love in our service. You cannot serve both God and riches. You may serve God and have riches... Like Father Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, uh, even um, wealthy Christians that are outlined for us, Lydia of Thyatira, who was a business owner, and uh, those who had trades and had large houses in which to host the church. We know there have been rich people in the church through all ages. doesn't mean they were faithless. The point is not that you can't have riches, but you cannot serve both God and riches. They cannot occupy equal ultimacy at the same time in your life. You cannot give your heart to both. You cannot give your heart to both. In the first place then, what can we derive from this? That outward acts of devotion are useless apart from a wholehearted, whole life devotion to God himself. It's the point Christ has been making throughout chapter 6. You can't just check off the boxes of the Christian life and then carry on uh, after whatever fancy crosses your mind. Okay, I prayed today. I read my Bible today. I went to church today. Well, now I can do whatever I want. I don't have to worry about what else God needs. No, that's not how this works. Your whole life, everything you do is to be oriented toward pleasing the Lord because He's your chief delight and He's your chief joy. Uh, this text also teaches us that riches are actually a rather cruel master, aren't they? Where the Lord is tender and loving and kind and seeks for your good, riches are cold and sterile and actually mindless with no intention, but with the ability to consume you and to destroy you. They're a cruel master. In the third place, it teaches us that those who seek for riches forsake God in doing so. We don't say that those who are rich are forsaking God, per se, but those that set out from the desire of their heart to be rich as the goal of their life, well, in order to do that, they have to sell their soul. 
They're forsaking God. And they're setting their hearts on the world. Because in the fourth place, the heart of man not only cannot be divided between the two, but must not be divided between the two, God and this world. This makes discovery of hypocrisy and greed in our hearts, doesn't it? What are you serving? Who is your master? Why do you do what you do? The question that Christ has been saying, uh, are you doing this for the attention of your father or for the attention of men? Now it's coming to an even finer point. Do you do what you do in service to God for God's sake, or do you do what you do in service to God for money's sake? You know, there's a saying among Christian fundraisers, and I was a fundraiser professionally for several years at Greenville Seminary and before that in another ministry, and it's that money serves ministry. Don't get it the other way around. Ministry never serves money. It cannot do that. Um, For you men who are preparing for the ministry... I encourage you, among little sayings that you store up in your mind, keep that one front and center. Because all the logistics of a church, the temptation is there. To think so much about dollars and attendance and uh, paying the bills and managing things that you forget. What is the purpose of all of that? It's in service to the ministry itself. Not the other way around. This truth also reveals something glorious. It reveals to us the glory of regeneration, of the expulsive power of a new affection, as Chalmers put it, and as I've said from this pulpit before, and that is this. When the Holy Spirit rushes into the darkened heart and enlightens the mind and the knowledge of Christ and renews the will in our effectual calling, in our regeneration, in the new birth, He casts out all competition, He throws off the throne in our hearts all the money and all the hobbies and all the other things that distract us, all the worldly concerns, so that Christ can take up residence and be seated on the throne in our hearts. This is the glory of God's work in our lives. And it teaches us to consecrate both body and soul to the Lord that we might serve him with all the powers and parts thereof, for he alone is our Lord and Master. Why do smart people not store up treasures in heaven? Because their minds are darkened. But you who have an enlightened mind, you know better, and you can walk wisely and live godly in this world. Well, why can't I serve God and money? Why can't I have both? Why can't I go after both? Well, because you can't. You can't serve and labor with a divided heart. Can a man be married to two women and love both? No. Uh, Can a man hold down two full-time jobs and do justice to them both? I speak from experience. The answer is no. (laughs) You cannot serve both God and mammon. You must serve God with a whole heart in all that you do. So I spoke of a farmer at the beginning of the sermon and of his vision for a field. Uh, let's, let's go into the city now. And you meet the great manufacturer. And he buys a new factory. 
and he's considering what he wants this factory to produce. And he gets a vision for that. And that vision of what he wants that factory to produce is going to determine a few things. It's going to determine the kinds of people he hires to work in that factory. It's going to determine the kinds of tools he has, the kinds of processes he'll follow, even the hours that his factory will operate, whether it's continuous operation or uh, if he has to take certain breaks during the day. It's going to define everything, all based on the vision he has. I was speaking with one man who is uh, the owner of, um, of a manufacturing firm, and he was telling me about how he goes out and picks out properties, and the very first thing is, can it fit the equipment that I need to fit in there? Is it high enough? Is it large enough for me? Because he has a clear vision of what needs to take place. And he gets into this issue um, that every manufacturer gets into and every farmer gets into, in fact, every, each and every one of us get into. And that is coming to decision points where there's a zero-sum game. You say yes to some things, you have to say no to others. And if you try to do both, you're just going to make a mess of things. What are you saying yes to? Are you saying yes to your eternal good? Or are you saying yes to temporal concerns and delights? Brothers and sisters, God is not opposed to eating and drinking and being clothed and well-fed and, and having homes in which you can practice hospitality. Not at all. Christ will dispel any notion that God is calling us to be hermits in the desert or something. But God is claiming, laying claim to your whole hearts. Indeed, he teaches us in this passage, the pursuit of eternal good must be the aim, the zero-sum aim of those whose minds are enlightened with heavenly wisdom and whose lives are shaped by their exclusive love for God. We sang about this, didn't we, in the fourth stanza of Be Thou My Vision. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. And the question that's posed to us from this passage this evening, which I pose to you at the conclusion of this sermon, is what is your treasure? Is it stored up in heavenly storehouses where Christ stands interceding on your behalf? Or is it in your closet at home or in your bank account down the street or wrapped up in your car or some other worldly possession or hobby? Is your treasure in your children ultimately or is it in your God? Is your treasure in your parents or your brothers and your sisters or what your friends think about of you? Or is it in God? Is your treasure in your worldly success? Or is it Christ himself who bled and died for you and proved his infinite worth in the resurrection? Oh, my friends, may it always be said of us at Antioch that their treasures were stored up in heaven. Let us pray. Lord our God in heaven above, we do bless your name. You are our chief delight and our good, our inheritance, the portion of our souls. Lord, increase our faith where we are failing and where we stumble. Lord, pick us up and refresh us anew. Teach us what it is to follow hard after Jesus Christ, to recognize him as both Lord and as Savior, to receive that which you graciously shower upon us in him. Lord, we pray that you would translate our attentions and our affections heavenward, that we would breathe the air of heaven and long for that day when we shall see you face to face. 
Prepare us, and particularly, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our children for that great day of judgment when Christ shall descend and the dead shall be raised and we will meet him in the air to welcome him to that which is his possession. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us to welcome him gladly, without terror, but with great joy and delight, for we shall on that day behold our treasure. Lord, we now dedicate ourselves to you for this week ahead. We pray for your spirit to carry us forth from this place in your service, to take that which we offer to you in our dedicatory offering this evening and to use it for your purposes, that even these meager gifts and contributions would be dedicated to your service. All this we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.